I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 50. We are, of course, working our way through this very long book. 66 chapters have started this last in September, and we'll wrap it up at the end of June. The sermon notes in your bulletin, I know, will be a help to you. As you find your way to both of those places, I I want to introduce you uh, to a writer by the name of Lauren Whitman, and just to read a a little bit here from an article that she wrote entitled, Mom Guilt. You ever heard of this? Yeah, well, maybe you've not heard of it, but you know about it. So I'm going to let her speak for herself. I don't ordinarily read uh, this kind of a, a part, but I know that she'll do a better job of representing mom guilt than I will. So she says this. The first time I struggled with mom guilt was the very day I became a mother. As many pregnant mothers do, I had carefully crafted a birth plan for my daughter's hospital delivery. In the months leading up to my due date, I did hours of research. I talked to my doctor. I talked to other mothers. I wrote and refined the draft of the plan. I printed out copies of it for everyone who would need it at the hospital. You already know how this is going to go, don't you? I hear the snickers from experienced moms going, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, okay. She says, I was ready. I fully expected that all would go according to plan. But all did not go according to plan. In my first days of motherhood, I struggled. I had failed. My birth plan represented what I had thought of as the best for my baby's entrance into the world, and I had failed to give that to her. And so in the months of learning to be a mom and focusing on a newborn, I was simultaneously fixating on my failure. This was my grim entrance into the experience of mom guilt. I soon discovered it could be pervasive, intruding into every situation or, or decision regarding my child. Mom guilt has many faces, and the burden can be heavy. And then she goes on from there to talk about ways that this shows up. When you're a mother of a young child, when your kids grow a little bit, and you start thinking, what if I mess up my kid? What if I deprive them of certain experiences that every child needs and my child doesn't? What if I don't make enough trips to Disneyland? What if I don't buy them the right toys and they're stunted in growth because they didn't learn their colors before they were two? What if I do it wrong? And then it gets worse. Your kids get a little older when they become capable of making decisions without you. And then mom guilt has other faces, doesn't it? My teenager isn't making decisions I would make, or my adult children, my goodness sakes, do I even want to start? I, I personally, stepping away from Miss Lauren for a moment, I, I know about this uh, because I was raised by a mom who was plagued by this her whole life, uh, all 87 years, uh, for a whole lot of reasons, raising six kids, uh, circumstances, things, mental health issues on some, wondering, did I do this to my children? Did I do it wrong? What could I have done differently? And no matter how many times we talked it through, it just kind of hung on with her. Lauren's article is a a good addressing of that topic, inviting us to think about the roots of this, the expectations, the effects of social media. I won't go there. Uh, Anyway, I, I, I look at all of that, and I found myself thinking, Lauren, you know what you're talking about. You're addressing a very real issue. And I also know that mom guilt sometimes becomes dad guilt, grandparent guilt, and all kinds of other places and ways in which this pervasive thing shows up in our life. Now, Lauren goes on real quickly in the article to say there's a difference between mom guilt and and biblical guilt, meaning biblical guilt describes what happens when we offend God. 
when we sin against God. Mom guilt routinely, uh, typically, isn't about sinning against God. It's about not going to Disneyland enough or depriving them of certain toys or experiences. So not, not sin, but the fears that drive us, lest we fail or our kids uh, somehow think we did or our friends on Facebook think we failed. Well, for all the people who deal with elements of shame like that or fear or true biblical guilt, okay, God's word speaks. And God's word speaks to us clearly on every single one of these life issues. And it gives good news. In every one of those cases, it points us to Jesus, Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, who is the answer to our sin problem and the answer to our guilt and our shame. Now, today, in Isaiah 50, 51, and most of 52, big chunk, I know, it'll be okay, we're going to take a look at good news. It's not so much about Jesus and, and the story of the gospel, but it's looking ahead to that. He shows up in the text. He really does. And I want you to see the comfort that God gives to us, whatever our life challenges and problems are today. So I'd love this section. It's really, really good news. I'm ready for some good news because life has brought, it seems recently, a lot of the other stuff. I want to pray for us, and then we'll walk together through this text, and you'll see in your notes four headings that will help us move through that section. All right? That's where we'll go. Pray with me, please. Our Father, it is always with great joy that we open your word together. We are so thankful that you have not left us alone without a word from you to live this life. Thank you that you love us as you do, and you care for us, and you, you speak to our human existence. Whatever our circumstances today, the emotions and thoughts that run through our heads, our Father, your word draws us near to you. And we pray that that indeed would happen today as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God for our good. I pray that that would happen now as we meet with you in the Word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you come to Isaiah 50 now. I mentioned a couple things there under the review section. We're going to see the word comfort show up several times in our text today, which is a carry-on of the way this section begins in Isaiah 40, where God, moving away from a section on judgment, says, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. And it's a wonderful statement of the nearness of God. Now, what I'm going to do is read different parts of this text, several right here at the beginning, but chapter 50, 1, 2, and 3, and I want to jump right into that first section, and I want to tell you before I read it, I, I put this under a heading that says, question, why all the problems, Lord? Because I think that's the question that God is answering. It's not spelled out, but that's the answer. Okay, he's following on some other things in the preceding section, but he's, he's answering something, an implied question in the very least. So I want to read 1, 2, and 3. It's going to strike you as a little bit different, but I think, I think it'll be okay as we work through this together. Why all the problems, Lord? So chapter 50, verse 1, then, as we read God's word. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother has sent you away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink like 
for lack of water and die of thirst, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Now, I said this was an encouraging text, and right away you're saying, okay, when will that begin? Because, but I'm telling you, it starts right here. It starts right here. Here's why. Israel, at, at this moment in history, as Isaiah the prophet speaks, is kind of in a mess. Uh, the nation's divided north against south, no really divided, kind of like would have happened in our country if the Civil War had not resolved uh, w- with the Union, okay? North against south, the north, man, those guys are in really bigger problems. The Assyrians have come and hauled them away, and the people in the south, my goodness sakes, you're in danger too. Lots of problems as a nation. Can you imagine lots of problems as a nation? Who would have thought? Well, and people are beginning to ask this question that you also ask. How come I have all these problems? Has God abandoned me? Is that what's gone on? Have I done whatever it is one too many times and God finally says, enough, you are just a big mess. Has it finally come to this? Or here, where God says, where's your mother's certificate of divorce for which I sent her away? The, the, the answer to that is it doesn't exist. There is none. God didn't divorce his people. Now, different in the North, different in the South. This is the, 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 the Vedic people in the South. And God says, where, where, where exactly is that? To which of my creditors, God says, did I, did I sell you? And of course, tongue-in-cheek here, God has no creditors. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He has no creditors. But he asks the question anyway, and what's the answer? Did, did I sell you? Did I sell you into some kind of slavery? Well, no. So your problems are not because I got rid of you. Your problems are not because I'm done with you. Your problems are, and then he tells them, for your iniquities you were sold. In other words, you're experiencing some things that are consequences of some decisions you've made. Don't you hate that? Yeah, and that, that's what's running through this text. God is saying, hey, wait a minute, things are going wrong, and you're looking at me and saying, why, God, what's the deal? Well, I'm going to look right back at you and say, well, what have you been doing? So coming back to you, for your own iniquities, you were sold. For your transgressions, your mother sent you away. Now, verse 2 is an explanation of this. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? So in other words, God calling to his people. Where are the God-loving people? Crickets. He opens the doors, place for worship, turns the lights on, cues up the sound. Come to worship. No one comes. That's what God is saying. Why, when I came, was there nobody there? Huh? When I called, how come no one answered? You're yelling at me because things aren't going well? <laughs> well, God says, have you forgotten my ability to save? Do you think I can't fix this? That's the next line in verse 2. Verse 2 is long. And now, I want you to watch this. The second half is, my hand shortened that it cannot redeem. Have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. This is a reference to an allusion. If you want to use a literary term, it's an allusion to, the, to the, God's deliverance of them out of Egypt. There are three of these in today's text. He brings it up three times, the, the deliverance from Egypt. You should know this. If you're going to be, a, 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 as a Bible scholar, one who's working on studying the Bible a bit, you, you'll remember, perhaps, we've talked about it here many times, it's really important. In the Bible, there are two big redemptive events. Old Testament, God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. That's the story of Passover that Jewish people remember year after year after year. The story of Passover, God against the gods of Egypt. God wins the 10 plagues and so on. That great deliverance, the Passover lamb. Now, that great deliverance is spoken of all through the Old Testament. Over and over again, God points to that and says, do you think I can't save you? Hello? Do you remember Egypt? 
Now, that event is looking forward to the bigger event. I said there were two. Old Testament, deliverance, Passover. New Testament, Christ, the bigger deliverance. Old Testament, that event was looking ahead to the bigger event, the Passover lamb, Christ, the lamb of God. So all the elements in the Old Testament there were looking ahead to Jesus who was to come, a redeemer who was to come. But God, over and over again, points them back to Egypt. He does it here. He does this again in chapter 51. You can look for it, verse 10. And chapter 52, verse 4, he makes a reference to deliverance from Egypt. And he's just saying it again and again. Are are you thinking I can't fix this? Just out of curiosity. Because, you know, I've, I've fixed things before. In a sense, he's asking his people this. A question he might ask you. Do you remember a time in your life when, when you saw my deliverance, it was really, really clear? Can you think of a time in your life when I showed up, you'd say, I saw your hand? Can you remember that? Do you remember a time in your life when you were very aware of my presence? Okay. God says, I, I can fix this. But there's something I want to say here that I think is so important throughout for our understanding of the Bible. Very often when we pray for God to help us, we're we're longing for God to fix the problem, and often what he does is give us comfort and help in the middle of it. In a sense, we're waiting for heaven where all things are made new, where all the problems, we're, we're wanting heaven. It's not wrong to want that, by the way. It's not wrong. You're looking ahead and saying, God, fix this. Uh, Heal this. Um, Stop the storm. We're longing for heaven. It's it's all right to long for that, but just be aware this isn't it yet. So what God often does here is meets us in the middle of our difficulty with his words of comfort, which is what really this broader text is all about. Now, a couple of things. On your sermon notes, okay? Go here with fear and trepidation. I do. Uh, That first little bullet point, problems and adversity come for a variety of reasons, including, and I give you five with a sixth that says, et cetera, and other things. Now, there are people often, when they go through difficulty, they ask the big question of why. Why, God? Well, um, here are five possible answers. And again, this is just a touching on a big topic, but here are a few things and, and um, so I'm just going to quickly touch on him. Number one, li- we live in a broken world. You might have noticed that. Ever since the Garden of Eden, this world has been affected and infected by the brokenness of sin. It has. In fact, Romans 8, the Apostle Paul talks about creation groaning, groaning, longing for a day of redemption. Well, it's the, it's, it's the way that the world is broken. You might have noticed the world's broken, which means things that go wrong, it's because of the consequences of a broken world. I think that that's the answer to a lot of stuff that happens to us. Um, this and this and this. Yeah, we're in a broken world. It's not what God intended. Now, we want to be careful because I think sometimes what it is is, number one, living in a broken world. Quickly, sometimes people say it's the devil, which I'm sure he does some things, but every time you get a parking t- ticket, it isn't the devil who made you do it, okay? It's because you didn't pay the money. You, got, you, you know, the broken world, man, you just forgot or something. A lot of other things happen in this world that are consequence of living in the broken world. And I just think the devil sometimes gets a lot of credit that, for things he didn't do. Um, I don't want to give him any more credit for things. So living in a broken world, there's one. Sometimes things come for our own foolishness or our sin. And by the way, not all of our foolishness is sin, is it? Sometimes we're just kind of dumb and we do stuff or we say stuff 
It might not be sinful, but it, you know, it wasn't the smartest moment in our life. And sometimes it brings results. And then number three, it's the people you hang out with. Sometimes they do something dumb or sinful, and it affects you. And so you suffer because of, you know, you're hooked up with so-and-so. You're with them. So sometimes it's that. Number four, sometimes God is teaching us something, absolutely something important. Number five, it's kind of hard, I think, to, differ, to, to discern God protecting us from something. Sometimes God uses pain or adversity to steer us, because otherwise we would never go that direction. So he's protecting us from going right off the cliff or protecting us from something worse. There's a story in the Old Testament that, I, that always catches me when I read it. It's in First Kings someplace, I think. It's a story. It's a tragic story. It really is. Um, a child gets sick and dies. It, 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 there's no good face to put on that. But then God gives a behind-the-view perspective. It doesn't make it all better, but it gives a perspective. So the child dies, and then God's comment on it is this. He alone will go to his grave in peace because something good was found in him toward the Lord. What's going to happen to the rest of you? You're going to get eaten by wild animals, okay? No, really, that's what happened. There were some bad folks. And God says to the child, I saw something good in this child. He will die peacefully. And the rest of you rascals, brace yourselves. Wow, does that fix it? No, it, it still hurts on both sides. I'm just saying God was protecting from something worse. That's a hard, hard thing to wrestle with, but I think it's true. Now, I want to caution you on something here, okay? Do not take this little piece of study material, shove it in your Bible, and the first time you come across a person who is struggling with something terrible and asking why, you go, oh, I got five reasons. Don't do that. That, that would be really mean, okay? Um, no, right at that moment when somebody is saying why, I don't understand, it's probably the better time to say I'm here for you, I care for you, and I love you, and I'll pray for you. Probably not the time to say, well, since you asked, here's five reasons, possibly, maybe you were stupid. Don't do that, okay? Bad, bad, bad. Well, I just think theologically we're dealing with things, and so here you go. It's your community groups, you'll likely catch some more as you look at number six and seven and on down. But there are other reasons in the Bible why things happen, but there's just a couple. So why the problems, Lord, verses 1, 2, and 3 begin to address that. Now, I move quickly to the next. God's ultimate answer is a redeemer who's going to come. Now, something happens between verses 3 and 4. Every good Bible scholar, you've got to ask certain questions as you read the text. Okay? Who's talking? To whom are they talking? What are they saying? If there are promises, are they to me? Or are they to somebody else primarily? If they're to somebody else primarily, is there application to me? Uh, I learned a little chorus when I was young. You know, every promise in the book is mine. Well, it made for a nice song. Anybody remember that? Say it. Yes, I know. Made for a great song, but it's not exactly true when you think about studying the Bible. Some promises were made to Israel. Some promises were made to some other people. For me to come along and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim that. I go, well, I wonder how that's going to work out for you. Because I don't think your name is, is Bob. Um, so it might not be to you specifically. But something happens between three and four. Something you'll notice. The voice changes. Okay? It doesn't announce it. It just does it. Someone else is talking. Who's speaking? Well, I'm going to read four through six, and something's happening here. There's a shift that takes place. So I read, the Lord God has given me. So this isn't God talking. Uh, somebody else. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who, taught, who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. 
Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who were taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned, not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. And he goes on. About whom is he speaking? Uh, you remember the book of Acts? There's a moment when the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip goes up to this uh, little chariot moment, and he says, about whom does the prophet speak? That's, he's talk, the prophet there is reading, uh, the, the guy is reading Isaiah 53 that we'll look at next week. So we would rightly ask the same question here. Who is speaking? Well, as you study this, you find out, my goodness sakes, verse 6, who does this sound like? Who, who is speaking? Um, this is Jesus. This is identified by Bible scholars as the third of the four servant songs in Isaiah. There are four where the voice changes and suddenly the servant, the capital S servant. You remember from our study, sometimes the word servant is used of Israel. Sometimes the word servant is used of Cyrus. It's also used of of Jesus who is to come, the Redeemer, the Savior, who is God's promise, who's going to come. It is promised for the future at this time of writing. So there are four times in Isaiah where it's like Jesus shows up and begins to talk. And I think that's what's happening. So people in verses 1 to 3 are saying, why all the problems? And the next voice in verse 4 is like the voice of Jesus. Talking to people are saying, what's going on? How come it's such a mess? And then Jesus comes and he says, the Lord's given me. I'm the one who hears and I speak for him. He awakens me. He speaks things into my ears. And, and listen, I gave my back. This is God's answer. I gave my back to those who strike, my beard to those who pull out, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Jesus who suffered and died in our place. Very interesting to see the, the shift. And it's that kind of a shift in the text that made the Ethiopian eunuch ask about Isaiah 53. What's going on here? There's something that changed. What is it? And Philip said, yes, it's speaking of Jesus. He pointed him to the gospel. And so here, now, verses 4 through 9 proper are the servant song. Verses 10 and 11 are like a response. So I read verse 10, a response to that voice. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Well, his servant has just spoken. Who is, who is the one who fears God and obeys this voice, the voice of the servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's, that's what God has to say to you. You're walking in the dark. You can't feel your way along. You ever been in complete darkness physically? One of those caves you go into where the guide maybe says, turn out the light. I've been up there in the ape caves of Mount St. Helens with youth group back. Uh, I think it's, I don't even know if it's open right now, but I've been down in there in the darkness where you go down one of the lava tubes. And it's true, you go down there, you better take some flashlights, more than one, because if you drop that thing, you're out of luck. It's, it's really dark. And there's a moment where you get in a big cavern, you say, okay, everybody, get, get someplace safe, turn off all the lights. And you've never seen blackness until you're in there. And it's dark. Wow. Eerie. You're water dripping. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light... Sometimes we live like that. We're in a moment where it feels just like that. I can't see a foot in front of me, and I don't know how to get out of here. And the answer here, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. He's going to be your flashlight and torch. He's going to be the light in the darkness. God's ultimate answer, a redeemer to come. Okay, I want to move to, to chapter 51. Third heading, God delights to reassure and comfort his people. And I'm going to read and make comment along the way 
verse uh, 1 through verse 16 of chapter 51. So it's a big section, but I want to interject some things along the way. I want you to notice, first of all, as I read, look for all the listens and looks. There are several. Look, the writer says, listen. Much of this is the voice of God, not all of it, as we'll see along the way. So God speaks. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. Sometimes the term Zion used of Jerusalem, the city. Sometimes it's used collectively of God's people, centered there in Zion. Sometimes in a collective way of God's, all of God's people of all time. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. Listen up, in other words. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. Who's our righteousness, by the way? Yeah, Christ. Christ is our righteousness. My, my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. In the Bible, coastlands is often used as code word for the nations. The nations, the non-Jewish peoples, kind of like the Great Commission, Old Testament. The coastlands hope for me, and with, for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner, Second Peter 3. My salvation will be forever, but my righteousness will never be dismayed. Again, listen to me. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment. That sounds interesting. The worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. So there's God's initial address. Look, listen. I will save you. Temporary things eaten by moth and so on. Now, verses 9 to 11, I would suggest is a prayer. It's a prayer. It's a prayer that basically says, God, do it. Do it. Do it. Bring it to pass. Lord Jesus, come. Sometimes people pray. This is a prayer, I think, saying, God, do what you've said. So awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Rahab here, not speaking of the person in the Old Testament, Rahab. This is a, a, a term used for a mythical idea of a, of a monster, a sea monster, chaos, storm. People were often very fearful of the big storms on the ocean, as you'd understand from ancient sailing vessels. They talk about Rahab as this, this sea monster, dragon, chaos. God says, uh, the, prayer, the person praying here says, God, you're the one who can, who can slay that dragon. Was it not you, verse 10, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? That's Egypt. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You want to sing that right now, don't you? You, you know the song. Um, that's right. And therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. Wonderful, wonderful. So this is a prayer. God, do it. Do it. Save us, O God, as in the days of old, rise up. We're in trouble. We're in torment. O God, do what you've said. 
Many times we pray that way today. God, do what you said. Do what you promised. Fix this. Deal with the wicked. Come on. Come on. Verse 12, God speaks. Hear his comfort. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of a man who dies or humanity? What are you, why are you afraid of this? The son of man who's made like the grass. Have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretches out the heavens and, and laid the foundations of the earth. And you, you, listen, you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. Where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and, and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens, laying the foundations of the earth, saying to Zion, saying to God's people, you are mine. You're my people. Imagine. What is, what is all of this? Well, I have a number of notes there on your sermon uh, outline. He, he starts, of course, by saying, remember where you've come from. Uh, remember the rock from which you were hewn. Remember the spiritual roots you have. Some of you have in your family tree a, a kind of a history of, of Jesus-loving people. My grandma, my grandpa, praying grandma. Um, back, oh my goodness, how many generations? Uh, uh, others of us don't have that. And we don't have to go very far back in the family tree to see some people who, who live pretty poorly. I don't mean economically. So he isn't here saying, you know, look to your biological roots. He's saying, look to your spiritual roots. You may not have any bio- biological roots. I get it. I do know about that. Um, you may not have in the biological roots uh, people who know and love God, but spiritually, remember those people who've gone before you, men and women of faith, who've walked a similar road, who learned how to hold on to God when it was really, really dark. Remember them. So Abraham and Sarah, who had to believe God, you remember, promise that seemed like it's not going to happen. Abraham, of course, Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham and Sarah together believed. He says, look at, the, look at people who've gone before you. Do you have anybody in your life who, who, who's walked with Jesus a little longer than you have? Anybody? Who do you have your eye on? I don't mean they're perfect. I remember being raised in a church where there were people like that that I had my eye on as a little guy who didn't have that. As a, as a, I looked for spiritual fathers. And I, I could name people. I did, even as a young guy. And that guy says, I'm going to pray for you. I knew he meant it. I remember those moments. Spiritual fathers who spoke into my heart. So God, over and over again, says, look, look, look at the roots that you have. Look at the spiritual roots, those who've gone before you, who've laid the foundation for you. Verse 3, God comforts. He he does. Verse 12, he comforts you. Now, in your community group notes, I'm asking you to, to just really wrestle with this and look for a number of things. For example, the correspondence between verse 1 and verse 7 There's very similar phrases used. Chapter 52, verse 9, how similar it is to chapter 51, verse 8. There's a whole lot of similarities in the text intended by the writer, intended by God himself to make you pay attention. The end of verse 6 and the end of verse 8. How interesting. Righteousness, the way it's used here. Wow. Now, verse 9, of course, awake, awake, used as a prayer. Now I move over to my fourth heading, okay? Okay. Heading toward a close. 
Chapter 51, verse 17, wake up is used again. Chapter 52, verse 1, it's used again, which is why I put it into my, the title of my thoughts here today, wake up, wake up. Sometimes we're calling God to wake up, and now he turns around and says, okay, now you wake up. Okay, that's what's going on in chapter 51, verse 17. God promises near deliverance and future deliverance. So beginning in 51, 17, I'm just going to look at that first heading and then let you browse down it. I'll tell you what's going on in this section. Now God, it says to the people, wake up, wake up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. And he starts listing all the bad things that have happened. He says, man, this was a rough go for you. God sees their pain. God sees your pain, by the way. He does. He saw their pain. He knew where it came from. He saw their rebellion. And he says, wake up, wake up, see, see what's gone on. And then there's a shift again at 52, verse 1. Wake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. And here he begins to speak of deliverance. And the, the eye of the faithful, the eye of those hearing God's word is now lifted from their current painful circumstances. That's what God's doing. He's saying, lift up, lift up your head. Look, look, you see my deliverance. And it's going to be a near deliverance and an ultimate deliverance. The near deliverance is the, re, is the return of God's people to the land. You remember that they're, they're sent into Babylon captivity 70 years, and then there's a time when they're brought back. Decree of Cyrus, we've spoken about these things, and we will again, I'm sure. But God is going to release them from captivity after 70 years. So there's a near deliverance. They're going to come back to Jerusalem. It's going to be amazing. All of that is paving away for another future, greater deliverance when God's people make their way to a different Jerusalem. So, so be thinking about that. I want to read verse 7 to verse 12 and then press into those two for just a couple of moments. So verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We know some songs about that verse too. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see, what are they seeing? The return of the Lord to Zion. This is amazing. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arms. like He's rolling up his sleeves before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now he says, depart, depart. Go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Near deliverance. I want you to think about this. The, the, the word comes from the decree of Cyrus. Hey, everybody, God's people, you're being set free. You get to go home. Some who were, who were young when the captivity began, They've been there for 70 years. So they're older now. Some of them have a memory where they go, I remember what it was like to be free. I remember what it was like growing up with my parents till all the wheels came off. I remember. We get to go back. Pretty old now, but I'm going to make the journey. I will. And many of them did. Many of those older folks who, who made the bad journey into captivity. Many of them made the journey back. There are reasons we know that from history told in the Bible. There were others who were born in captivity who had no idea what it was like to breathe free. And here was their moment. They were going to go back. It's, an, it's astounding when you think of the history of that. Cyrus says you can go, and young and old alike, some saying, I've never seen this. 
I've heard you talk about it, Grandma, Grandpa. I've heard of the days of freedom, the days of Jerusalem, the days of amazing worship. We get to go back. Now, in those days, how was news often carried? Well, runners. That's what you did. Yeah, I mean, how else are you going to tell? So when there's a terrible thing happens in a battle or something good, you send a runner. You get one of your young people and say, can you run the 20 miles and tell them? Or run to the next runner and tell them? Well, that's what they did. So the, the picture here is told. The watchman, this, I'm just telling you what this is about. Verse, verse 8 talks about a watchman. It's like they're on the wreck of Jerusalem. This torn down wall stands a lone watchman waiting for good news. Can you imagine? It's rubble all around. Devastation. And they're looking, they're hoping. And there on the hill comes a runner. Imagine this day. You think, oh boy, is it good news or bad news? Well, this runner comes close and he's shouting, we're free, we're free, we're coming back. Can you imagine the person on the wall saying, what can it be? God is delivered. What's broken is gonna be healed. What's, what, what is just a mess God is going to clean it up? Can you imagine? Imagine your joy if that greatest mess or difficulty or pain in your heart was going to be fixed tomorrow. Can you imagine? This person, that, a physical illness, a marriage restored, something broken, just, just healed. Can you imagine? That's here. No wonder they come with singing into Zion. And then the people come, It takes weeks, it takes months to make the journey. And they come, and they're coming home. And all of that, as described here, is looking forward to an even greater day when God's people, coming out of a different Babylon, see a different home in view. A heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21 speaks about a day when when the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Not just an old Jerusalem made out of sticks and stones and rocks, but a new Jerusalem made out of glory. Not one lit up by oil lamps and so on, one lit up by the glory of God. Not one inhabited by still broken people, still trying their best to get it all right, but one inhabited by people who have been made right by the power of God. No vestige of sin remains. In all those other rascally people, or in you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I think, you know what? Often we get most excited about God fixing everybody else. Can you imagine you being fully free from those elements of sin that percolate through your heart, that bring jealousy and strife, harsh words, snarkiness, all kinds of other stuff? Can you imagine yourself being free from all that? I mean, just try that. Oh, Lord, deliver me. And He will. He will. There will be a day when it isn't just a a, a city made out of of things here. God's people will enter a different city. Put a number of these things on your your sermon notes for you to look at. Uh, Verse 11 is worth a comment. Depart, depart, go out from there. What's the point of this? Here it is. Leave in Babylon the things that should stay in Babylon. Leave in Babylon the stuff that belongs there. Get your hands off. You're going to go out and going to go back. You're going to go with God's people going to have a, inhabit a new home? Well, don't, don't take the unclean things from Babylon. Leave in Babylon the things that belong in Babylon. You're going to walk a new life. You're going to live into freedom. There are things that should be left behind. So leave them there. 
Walk away from those things. You who bear the vessels of the Lord, you're going to carry back all those things of worship, thinking back into this day. Carry those things back to the, to the temple for, for, uh, to be rebuilt and celebrated and worshiped together. Don't bring back the stuff that belongs in Babylon. Leave it, leave it, leave it. Uh, there are a lot of things we could say about that. Things that belong in Babylon should stay there. And we live on into a different kind of freedom. The New Testament uses these terms as well. Apostle Paul does. Well, look at that section called Responding to God's Word. Just a couple questions and we'll be done here today. We begin today by talking about mom guilt. I don't know if that plagues you today or some other guilt. Uh, Maybe a false guilt over something that isn't sin. Or maybe real guilt over something that is. Either way, the answer is the same. We come to to the Lord. We come to, to Christ We cry out to him for strength or for forgiveness. And I'm asking you here, about what problems will you cry out to God today? We're going to pray together in a minute. What are those things that you'll say, Lord, I wish you'd fix this. I know I long for heaven, but will you fix this or save that person or help? What are those problems? Every person in this room has something that they long to see different. I'd be stunned if that weren't true. I ask again, second bullet point, the promise of a coming Savior runs through the Old Testament. Jesus, his voice interjected into today's text. Christ who came to pay for our sin and to cover our shame. And I just ask again, are you trusting Christ as your Savior from sin? I ask that often and I will ask it again as long as I have a voice to speak. Are you trusting Christ as your Savior from sin? You hear, you hear of Jesus, his work on the cross. People go to church for years and never do business with God. So what in the world would you wait for? What? Are you trusting Christ as your Savior from sin? I hope the answer would be yes. And then my final comment there, never, never take your eyes off the glorious future God has promised to those who love him. He says it over and over again. Lift up your eyes. Look. Do you see the day coming when all the things that you grieve over today will be taken care of, done away with, wrongs righted, hurts healed? Do you see that day? And let it give you hope today. Let it give you hope. Would you stand with me? We want to pray as we close. Father, I thank you that you see the hidden things. You see the cry of every heart. You see the hurts and the wounds. You see the joys as some of us today on this Mother's Day look back, look back and do so with joy and gratefulness for those who have been our moms and grandmas and other significant women in our lives. Some who are able to celebrate today with, with moms who are still living, grandmas still living, others of us for whom those are memories. And Father, I'm also so aware that there are some who look back on a mom or a mom figure and do so with pain. And I feel that pain, hear it often. And Father, whatever those needs are today, we just bring it to you and say, Lord, here it is, here it is. We long for heaven. Until that day, we say, oh Lord, grant your grace. Give us your grace. Thank you for these, your people today. Bless us, keep us. In Jesus' name, amen.